0: This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Darren Roberts, who's a former NFL and college coach and who now serves as the founding director of the Center for Sports Leadership and Innovation at the University of Texas. Darren created CSLI in the fall of 2014. The center is the first university-based institute dedicated to developing leadership and character curricula for high school, collegiate, and professional athletes. And it is the only student athlete leadership center at the FBS level that reports directly to the office of the president. Throughout the center, Darren teaches a course, a game plan for winning a life to freshmen student-athletes. To date, the course has reached 1,600 students. His research revolves around issues of rejection, failure management, student-athlete financial literacy, and leadership. Darren has launched the iLead Speaker Series and has interviewed Mia Hamm, Sean White, Lance Armstrong, Ali Raisman, Brene Brown, among others. Darren, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband.
1: Mark, thank you for having me. I'm excited. I'm pumped. This will be a great conversation. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. So uh, your chosen passage is Genesis 126. Now, before we get into that, I just want to to ask you something about your magnificent TED Talk. You gave a TED Talk at TEDx Austin, which was one of the best I've ever seen, one of the best TED Talks I've ever seen. And you made a fascinating point, which has biblical resonance, which is why I want to begin with that TED Talk, where you said, in your years of educating student-athletes, you said that there's one thing that's stopping them from becoming who they can be, and that's fear.
1: The fear element I, I find, and look, I've taught 1,500 students at the University of Texas over the course of the past six years. It's always interesting to me in the sense of you have young people leaving their homes, you know, in a pre-COVID world, venturing off to be in person on the physical space of a university but when you have one-on-one conversations with them, you find that many of them are fearful of pursuing the direction that they want to take in life. And usually, Mark, I find that there's this undercurrent of parental expectation. So mom and dad sent me here to be an engineer. They sent me here to be a lawyer. They sent me to you know, go into investment banking. I have this joke that you know, all of my business students are GM or bust, right? It's Goldman or McKinsey, or they consider their four-year experience to be a failure. And this fear component just seeps into the decision-making process. And so one of the things that I've dedicated my life to is trying to alleviate the shackles associated with fear, also creating a comfort level with rejection. So I teach classes on rejection. And just in general, helping people to wage war against their status quo.
0: Fascinating, because the most frequently stated prohibition in the Bible, which of course is full prohibitions, the most frequently stated one is do not fear.
1: Fear not, fear not, fear not, right? 80 times in the
0: Torah. And so it was fascinating to me to see that you say that these freshmen at the University of Texas, for whom a great big world is in front of them, have fear. I mean, one thing I was thinking about was, wow, that's what the Bible said and how relevant the Bible is today. But what do they have to be afraid of?
1: I think there's also this very... Manufactured zero one system, right? In that I'm either a success or a failure, and I tell my students, I say, look, if I'm you, you should view life as a Chinese buffet. Okay, you're going to pay eight ninety nine, and you're going to go up, and you can get some Mugu guy gai pan, get some General So chicken, the egg rolls. You may or may not may not like them, but who cares, right? Empty the plate and go get something else, and so this comfort level with trying new things early in your career instead of identifying what the thing is early on. I think that's one of the major undercurrents you see is that there's a pressure that I need to get it right on the first at bat versus this is a series of games and I am going to tinker and play around with different functions that could really give my life meaning. And then over time, I will figure out the thing, And I even will say this, Mark, I even have been thinking from a biblical perspective, even this notion of purpose in the singular form, I'm not sure it exists, right? There are different seasons of our lives and we play different roles. And so I think that there's this, the, the real undercurrent is they want to get it right because they think there's one thing they should be doing in life. And I think as much as we can, we have to dispel that myth
0: right and i mean i was just thinking about the story i'm teaching tomorrow the joseph story i mean how the ups and downs the twists and turns imagine if joseph thought there was one way to get it right i mean it's just it's what god says in exodus is that you will know me by my back you don't know till a long way into the journey how you're doing
1: yeah you know my, my dad's a baptist minister he's been a baptist minister for 43 years and he's got a great sermon that he teaches uh and the the title is you can't tell everyone your dreams and he talks about joseph right <laughs> you can't tell everyone your dreams because not everyone's ready to accept the vision. People are at different points in their lives. They're in different relationships with their maker. And so you have to be very careful about who you communicate your dreams to. So we talk about Joseph. There's no more circuitous story in the Bible than the life of Joseph.
0: That's right. So let's turn from Joseph to your chosen passage, which is Genesis 126. So please tell us what happens in Genesis 1.26 and why is it significant to you?
1: Yeah. So this is the point. So we at in in creation and God now comes to this point in which he is about to make man. And I think that there's something that a lot of people miss in the scripture and that he says, and God said, let us, so I want to focus and underline that us make man in our, again, bold italics. Who's the plural? Who's the plural, right? And so from my Judeo-Christian or Baptist faith, it's interpretation is the trinity right this, these early forms of the spirit and jesus but i think the most important thing is that just to, for us to realize that the creation of man was a collaboration this was a mixtape so this is not a singular vision and so i think especially in light of all that's happened in 2020 and talks around diversity and inclusion and i always say that you know it's man that has had the problem with diversity God's been good with it since the beginning.
0: The whole Tower of Babel story is a celebration of diversity. God hates it when everyone is thinking the same way. So what does he do? He changes the languages, disperses us around the nations.
1: Exactly, and, and I, I think that we think that this is, especially in this century, we kind of see this as a as a new thing. It has its roots in the beginning. And then the, the second point that I think is so important, especially for the year that we've had and for the future we're about to see in 21 is, It always forces me to ask this question to myself. If God made me in his image, in their image, right? And they created, well, shouldn't I be creating? We should be creating.
0: Yes, exactly. So what does it mean to be created in God's image? God is the great creator, and we'll later see in Exodus, the great liberator. So if we are created in God's image, those would be the two things that we would be called upon to do—to create and deliver.
1: Absolutely, and I think that you know, in this, in this sort of the startup VC age that we're in, um, there's oftentimes so much of a focus on Silicon Valley and IPOs and stacks and all the things. And when I talk about creating, this doesn't have to be a company. This this can be a relationship in your neighborhood, right? This can be a solution at the daycare center that keeps your kids. And so I think just from a creation standpoint, it just calls us and reminds us to be vigilant in our intellectual curiosity, in our spiritual curiosity, to make things that help people become better people and better humans.
0: Absolutely. So let's get back to the plural, which I think is such an interesting locution in the Bible. And of course, God is singular. There's only one God. yet. The one God said, let us. Now, my interpretation of this, and of course, the following could be wrong, or it could be right, along with others that are also right. One of the great things about the Bible is it lends itself to multiple interpretations, each of which can be true and each of which can teach. But I know you have five kids, right? Yes, yes. So I have four. So we have nine kids between us. It seems to me that when God says, let us make, it's how often have we as parents, and particularly our wives, talked to and dreamed for the unborn children, the children who was... In their womb the children that maybe not have even been conceived yet but we're dreaming of having that it's this conversation that starts before they're born so that's how i interpret this when god says let us make man he's talking to the man who has not yet been created and is saying i want you to be my partner in creation i'm not going to do this myself the fact that you're you're not born yet you'll get born that's okay that's not the problem from god's perspective but i want you to be my partner in creation so let us make man because of course All throughout the Bible, we learn that we're God's partners in creation. So it seems to me that God would have realized this at this point, even before he creates us, just as we have dreams for our children who may not have even been conceived, God had dreams for his children who've not even been conceived.
1: Yeah, I like that interpretation, That the notion that the creation becomes a co-collaborator, right? Even pre-existence, the creation becomes... A co-creator. And we think about, you know, God knowing, talking about the plans for us in our womb, right? And sort of this very intentional crafting by the maker of not just a, a human life, but also of a future and a destiny that's enclosed within that creation. That's right.
0: Because it's very, it's in the plural and the other interpretations don't seem to work that God's talking to the sun or the trees or whatever. I mean, I mean, I think we have to read this as with the rational facilities that God gave us and to, you don't have conversations with trees and with inanimate objects. You'd be a lunatic, right? You start talking to rocks or whatever.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting also too, if you go over to John one, you know, one of the scriptures that always has captured my attention from an early age was in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Right. And so there's this co-presence right from inception, So whether it is the creation that's the co-collaborator, whether it is this other spiritual being in the form of the Holy Spirit or in form of Christ, I think what's important is to note that this is creation by committee. That's
0: right. Whoever it is, it's not singular.
1: It's not singular. And if it's not singular, that means that it's diverse. So if it's not singular, there is some difference between whatever beings are at this table of creation, which lends itself, and I think about the Human Genome Project and revealing the fact that humans share 99% of, <laughs> of the human genome, regardless of hemisphere and age and time, we share 99% of the underlying genetic code, but there's just 1%. So, so maybe that 1% in differentiation is wrapped up in that moment of creation, right? This special component that makes Mark, Mark, and Darren, Darren.
0: Fascinating. And it's such an interesting point about diversity, because if God is stating, I'm a, not only a creator, but I'm a co-creator, then to create something with God means to do something with maximal diversity. Because what is more different than any of us in God?
1: Nothing. Right. And who is a better co right? If you're going to take out this love, I mean, who is a better co to have on this journey if we are going to leverage down on life? And so I think that also gives us to me, and for me, it provides comfort in the sense of this becomes less about Darren and more about Darren's relationship with God. And, and this is something that I struggle with. I have to be honest with you, Mark, with five kids and an incredible wife and three different jobs. I get sometimes so consumed by Darren that I don't take the time to zoom out and get closer to this relationship that I have with God and saying, look, this is a we're in partnership in terms of my life let me make sure that I am consistently and continually going to you for input, advice and feedback and support, whether it's through prayer or whether it's through reading the scripture. This is a thing that I'm constantly working on and I'm, I'm rooted in my biblical learnings and my readings, but it requires discipline. Like an athlete who works out consistently, right, has a regimen, it requires that same level of discipline.
0: Well, fascinating. You know, one of the kind of staples of Jewish teaching is make a fixed time for Torah study. I suppose it's the same discipline of an athlete, right? It's a fixed time to prepare, to work out, to do whatever you have to do to be your best.
1: I love it. You know, I I always oftentimes say that um, if it's not in my calendar, it doesn't exist. And I learned that three years ago in the sense that I had all these goals to spend more time with the family, And then when I would do these, I do quarterly reviews of my life.
0: With whom? Do you have a a pastor or a religious leader with whom you do this or do you do it yourself?
1: I do it with with myself. So, you know, it's interesting right now for the next two weeks, I will do a deep dive into my 2020. So every December, I take the last two weeks to do a year in review of Darren from a work, family and health standpoint and wrapped up in health and spirituality in my relationship with God. Then I set benchmarks for Q1, Q2, Q3, Q4 the following year. You
0: set benchmarks now in Q4 the previous year?
1: In Q4 the previous year, I'll set up 21 Q1 through four benchmarks on those dimensions from a work, family, and health perspective. And then I will calendar that last level of intentionality or next to last level, put it in the calendar, and then let's make sure when the calendar reminder comes through, it doesn't get scuttled to the, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. No, this means I need to do it now because it's a priority.
0: It's a fixed time, right? This is fascinating. How detailed will your life plan for 21 be? Will it be general goals or will it be um,
1: much more specific? I'm a student of the liberal arts, but I've also, I have a love affair with spreadsheets, right? So this thing is meticulously planned out in Excel and some of them are numerical in in note, right? So for my speaking and coaching business, I'll have benchmarks around how much do I want to gross in each quarter on my speeches from consulting and from one-on-one coaching, right? So I'll have benchmarks around that. I also have found that for like my family, for example, I needed to quantify it, right? So I want to spend X number of hours per week with my family. I want us to have X number of experiences making puzzles or X number of experiences going on hikes. I had to really quantify it on my end because, and at first I was unsettled with this, but I've seen the result and it works for me. I need to gamify it on my end to add another level of accountability once you get into the throes of the new year.
0: Fascinating. I think quantifying time with family is so interesting and important because as every parent knows, children don't understand the concept of quality time. It's like all time is quality time. You know, very often the most, the deepest question or the most profound statement or observation from a child will come at the most unexpected moment, which is not during a prescribed quality time. It'll just be by spending lots of time and lots of time that shows how much you love them, how much you care about them, how much you want to be with them, that the quality moment, so to speak, will emerge.
1: My oldest is 10, my youngest is three. And so at the dinner table each night, we ask a few questions, okay, what was the highlight of your day? What is one thing that if you could go back and change it, you would change about the day?
0: You ask the same questions to each of the five kids each night?
1: To each of the five kids each night. And here's what's interesting. After a while, our kids now, they run the show. So so they are the DJs. So it used to be my wife and I would tee the questions up. But now one of our kids will just pipe up and, and say, hey, what was your highlight of the day? And we'll go around the table. And I think what's always interesting is that especially on Saturdays. I spend all Saturday with my children. And there will be some times where I will think, man, that one hour that we had together working on a puzzle, like that was the real moment for Jackson and I. And then Jack at the end of the night will say, hey, what was your highlight? And he'll say, oh, it was the sitting in the treehouse with daddy. And I'm thinking to myself, one, I'm not sure I can remember sitting in the treehouse. Two, I don't think we talked about anything really important, but it just goes to show you it's about perspective. So for him, he felt a connection in the treehouse and that's what stands out.
0: Right. And it's because you spent the whole day that you were able to have that treehouse experience because you wouldn't have even prescribed it.
1: I wouldn't have prescribed it. And that's, uh, you know, we, we have these moments where we just call, these are our utility hours where we're going to spend time with each other, but we don't know what we're going to do. Where do you go? You know, now in Austin, we've got some great, you know, we got Lady Bird Lake, We've got hills to be able to hike through. So my wife will pick a trail. We've got a great big yard. And so we've, it's turned into the kids empire and we've got all sorts of things in the back. But we've also, we've got this newfound love for puzzles. We're like averaging a puzzle every two days and we each just take a component and kind of talk and work through it. So I've also found out this mark is that the less I prescribe, the happier they are. So the only staple I have every Saturday is I have a thing called donut council where, take five of my kids to a different donut shop in COVID. Now I go pick it up or it gets delivered and we just gorge on donuts.
0: You don't look like you're gorging on donuts too often.
1: I also have to run 30 miles a week. To- <laughs> I'm just breaking even, Mark. It's all up to it. I'm just trying to break even, man. But, uh, you know, we just sit down and talk and we've been doing that. That was, um, uh, my last coaching job was with the Cleveland Browns and I was sleeping at the office three nights a week. And so when Jimmy Haslam fired the entire crew, one of the things I decided that I wasn't going to go back into coaching and I was going to build something into our Saturdays that would bond us together. And so we, we've been at it for six years now.
0: Beautiful. I was going to ask you, did the Saturday tradition, is that related to Saturday being the uh, Shabbat, the Jewish Sabbath? Cause I, w- I would have thought you as a Baptist would have picked Sunday.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. And you know, it's, I'm going to be honest with you on this front is that um, 2020 really tested my faith. And it also caused me to think about spirituality in a different way. And this is what I mean. I think what I've seen a lot from Christianity, in particular white Christianity, is this very dogmatic approach to the relationship with our creator. And from traveling to Israel five times, I always say that Jerusalem is my favorite city in the world because just within this small plot of real estate, One can't help but rub shoulders or come into contact with people and places that have eternal significance. And we practice Hanukkah. We practice Kwanzaa. We're constantly trying to integrate teachings from other religions into our own spirituality. And I I just think that um, we have to be creative in the ways that we reach out to our maker. And I think a lot of times dogma, can hold us back in the sense of it's so prescribed that it becomes automatic and less intentional. And so to answer your original question, we just pick Saturday. You know, we go to virtual church on Sunday, Saturday, sort of my internal Sabbath of I'm not doing much. We're going to rest and we're going to spend time with each other.
0: Beautiful. Well, Darren, thank you for such a fascinating conversation on so many levels. I mean, I I think you should write a book on parenting. Have you thought about that?
1: Well, Mark, I'm not sure that I'm qualified. We're trying to figure this thing out on the fly.
0: (laughs) Well, no, but doesn't the fact that you said that make you supremely qualified?
1: First, I'm honored. I appreciate it. You know, my wife and I, uh, Hillary, we've been married for 10 years and she's from Kansas. She's a Jayhawk through and through. And we have these conversations in which- Is that okay? In some circles. We've got this big 12 rivalry. She says, you know, to me- She has basketball season and as a longhorn, I have football season. But now her joke is, Darren, you don't even have football season anymore. So it it creates some tension. But um, we're just talking about parenting. And you say, you know, you think about the endeavors of your life. What is more important than parenting? I mean, give me a higher stakes activity that a person can undertake than being a parent. And what you find is a lot of it is trial and error, right? (laughs) And we think about just our first kid, pacifier falls to the floor. You throw it away. Second kid, pacifier falls to the floor. You know, the boiling water, sanitize it back. Third kid, we blow it off. Keep it moving.
0: Fourth and fifth kid, you don't even notice the pacifiers on the floor.
1: <laughs> fifth kid, we're like, get it yourself. Keep it moving. You right, know? Right. So <laughs> I'm going to think about it.
0: Well, I mean, I really think you should do it because you have so much wisdom to share, both philosophically and in terms of just tactics. And it is trial and error. But it's traveling for everybody. So a lot of people for the first time, if they read the wisdom or hopefully hear about it on this podcast, but they read it more fleshed out, like a book format would enable, it would enable them to avoid a lot of the error and to, as importantly or more importantly, just capture some of these really tremendous ideas and rituals that enrich parenting and the children.
1: I appreciate it, Mark. I may have to, you know, I'm going to go into my two weeks of planning. So you may be forcing me to squeeze some time into an Excel sheet on, uh, for writing this thing.
0: Absolutely. Well, the concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from, from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is André Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. He says in the book, I just ran to this man with whom I served in the war. He said he saved a lot of Jews and then became a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there's no such thing as a grown-up person. <laughs> so Darren, in all of your years of being around young athletes, both as an NFL and college coach, and now as a professor and a teacher, what are two things that you've learned about humankind?
1: The first one, Mark, would be that we heal faster than we think we will. Go back to the, the heartthrob from junior high. You know, there was this person that you thought, if he or she was not in your life, it was over. You were going to die Maybe come back and get a second chance, but or maybe not, or maybe not, right? <laughs> Depending on your you know religious and philosophical bent, but it was a zero one proposition. I think every listener can identify
0: and is thinking about someone right now, it's that
1: person. And this is an exercise that I have in, my, in one of my classes. I force students to close their eyes and really go back and you know get the cafeteria sense in your nostrils and really think about all of the anticipation associated in the anxiety that was bottled up in this human being. And then you found out it wasn't going to happen. Okay. And there was this period, you know, and some of us walk around in sackcloth and ashes and we're in mourning and we're never going to recover. And then I ask a lot of my students, I ask a lot of adults, I do some, some of my coaching exercises. I will say, tell me his or her name. And a lot of times people can't even remember the name. It's like, I, you know, maybe it was Sarah, was it Amanda? But at the moment, right, when you're going through it, it seems so real. And it is.
0: And what's interesting is, is you're doing this exercise with college students who actually are not that far removed from that experience.
1: Absolutely. And I also do this this uh, exercise with executives because, you know, for executives, a lot of times it's always everything's not going to work out and the ship's going down. So the, the reason why I mentioned this is because I just want us to remember, you know, listeners and all of us to to remember that we heal faster than we think we will. So in the moment, it seems painful and it is, but just go back to those deep moments from your life and realize that the Lord has brought you through them and you've healed in ways that you couldn't have imagined. So that would be number one. Number two would be, I'm going to steal this one from Herm Edwards.
0: He was your uh, head coach when you were the assistant coach of the chiefs, right?
1: Yes. an Incredible man. Gave me a chance I went through six months of, of hazing and cleaning whiteboards and sleeping in Arrowhead, but was fortunate that he hired me on. Out
0: of Harvard Law School.
1: Out of Harvard Law School. So I, you know, all of my friends were at Wachtell and Goldman and McKinsey, making a ton of money. And uh, I was sleeping in a deserted <laughs> storage closet in the bowels of Arrowhead. But it was the most exciting year of my life, I can say. But he would always say something that I thought was important. He would say, you are who the tape says you are. And what he meant was for a football player, you can tell me about your potential or what you could do in the starting lineup, but all that we can judge a player on is by the tape. So when we go and press play on the tape, who is the player that we see up on that screen? And I think that this lesson also applies just to us as humans, right? A lot of times we speak about intentions and plans and anticipations and what we're going to do in the future but we are who the tape says we are. And none of those futuristic thoughts bear any weight in the present tense. So that that would be my, my second.
0: Yeah, whatever we imagine ourselves to be or to have been, it's what the tape
1: says. Right, because I think it's easy for us to get into this, to use another football analogy, we can get into this annual punting process where, oh, we'll do that next year, we'll do that next quarter. We look up, 10 years have passed. And especially on a lot of these intractable issues like, race and justice, right? And just the, just the existence of mankind, whether it's the climate, we are who the tape says we are in the sense of what are we doing? Not what are we going to do? What do we put, like, what are you doing? Whether it's in, on the board of your HOA, your neighborhood or in national government, what are you doing? And be honest about that. And then write the ship that goes towards action. I'll say one quick thing too. Uh, January is coming up and you're going to see a lot of Instagram post that will be quoting Martin Luther King and talking about the arc of justice, right? And talking about it it tends to lean towards, how does it go again now? I'm forgetting.
0: It bends towards justice.
1: Yes. And it bends towards justice. I want us to remember that it takes some people to tug on it and pull on it. Like it doesn't naturally bend. This isn't a natural progression. And so it just comes back to like, it requires our action in order for us to see the reality that we want to see.
0: That's beautiful. I mean, Martin Luther King himself made that arc bend towards justice.
1: Yes. And to assume that this thing will naturally happen, it's very clear just from history alone that human nature does not gravitate towards that outcome. It requires people and communities to come together and force it to end in that destination.
0: Well, actually, you know, in Genesis 1, which is, you know, of course, the, from the same... Uh, that you chose, it talks about, I think it's Genesis one, it's just Genesis one or two, it's, it's Lamech, and it says that um, he's basically a genius. He invents culture in the sense that he invents music, he invents architecture, he invents all kinds of technologies. And what does he brag to his wife about? How many people he killed? So what's the instruction? The instruction is that moral progress and technical progress or material progress have nothing to do with one another. Arcs don't naturally bend towards justice. It's a matter of what we do.
1: And what better year to remind us that the world's problems deserve and require our attention than 2020. 2020 is from a racial dimension to politics, to medicine and climate. We need to get into the arena and start to tussle and grapple with these issues on the ground level instead of just assuming that they will get better because they won't. That's right.
0: Well, Darren, thank you so much for such a fascinating conversation about so many topics and issues, all stemming from uh, the great passage of Genesis 126 and the meaning of the plural us.
1: Mark, I appreciate you, man. This is a great conversation. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for spreading your light. You're, you're putting inspiration and you're putting the kind of soul juice, right? Well, my, my Uncle Ray would call it soul juice, right? The stuff that you need to be a good human into the world that we need. So thank you for having me, man.
0: No, thank you for coming. It's such a great conversation. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind the scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email Daniel at therabbishusband.com.